All right, church family, come and get your love. Um, We are in uh, the book of Ephesians, walking through it together. Um, And let's pray for a second uh, that God speaks to us. There's a cool arc to the entire service today, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So, Jesus, we just ask and we pray as we spend this time together um, as a church family that you would speak to each and every one of us. For those who are following you and have been following you faithfully for a long time, God, would you speak fresh, new wind spirit life into us today as we as we examine your word together and for those of us who are uh, here for the first time or for the first time in a long time uh, perhaps on the periphery of God and faith and church and Bible would you make today specific and relevant to each and every one of us that we can all be more like you Jesus in your name we pray amen so we're actually going to hop into the text pretty quick. Normally, uh, kind of the arc of a typical sermon, uh, we will start off with you know some kind of an introduction that kind of poses a question and a tension that's resolved in the actual text itself. But today, uh, we're going to let the text create its own tension because it is very much a text um, that is relevant to d- for today. And in fact, no matter who you are, um, where you are, what you believe, where you are in terms of religiousness, Christianity, um, what Paul is going to talk about today is incredibly important, I think, for all of us. So if you got your Bible... Um, in the book of Ephesians, which is what we're going through, um, was, was Paul, who, a uh, little bit of context, Old Testament pre-Jesus, New Testament Jesus and beyond, um, Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians after Jesus um, had died, lived, died, rose, church started, Paul hated the church, didn't like the church, wanted to kill the church, persecute the church. Well, then he became a Christian, and as he becomes a Christian, he starts planting churches, raising leaders, doing a bunch of cool stuff, and so he's writing this this letter to the church at Ephesus, and we're going to examine a context and a problem that existed within their context. So it says in chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Now, before we go on to where it's going to be some interesting stuff if you haven't read the Bible in a long time, um, he says, therefore, and one of my favorite pastors, one of my mentors um, in a college was a pastor by the name of Reggie Hutchins. Pastor Reggie was with FCA. I uh, pastors Unity Baptist on the south side here in Tallahassee. Uh, and Pastor Reggie always had this saying, whenever you read the, there, the word therefore, you have to know what it's. You guys know Reggie too. That's awesome. Um, no, so you have, you have to know what it's there for. So therefore, what's interesting here is therefore is a connection. It's kind of a hinge between what was just written and what's about to be said. Now, what was just written, if you hear if you weren't here last week, is Paul, who is saying this is basically how Christianity or the gospel works. That we were far from God, and not just far from God, that we were actually dead. That was not just the problem that we were bad people. We were spiritually dead people because of the fact that we are sinners. Well, God did not sit back in the ether of, of you know, heaven and just say good luck. He did something for us. He sent his son. And it's by grace, in other words, the grace of God, the unmerited, we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. There's nothing that we did. Through faith, we simply believed we now have salvation. So as people who have been saved, and people who are now God's workmanship created in in Christ Jesus to do good works, he pivots here and says, let me tell you a little bit about the church. Let me tell you a little bit about the church. And their context for church was so wildly different from our context from church. 
But their context from church and the problems they faced were so closely paralleling our problems in context for church. So he writes this. He says, so therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, two big groups, Jews, Gentiles. We're going to get into this in a second. He says, Gentiles, people who weren't Jews, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now I'm going to let you guess what that means, Okay. But we'll just say two categories. And if you've never heard of that and don't know what that means, just like ask your parents later. Um, I was thinking, you know, we should do like an anatomy class. This is what. But no, let's pray instead. So he says, so the Gentiles, the, everybody who was in the nation of Israel, you know, called the, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is, made by, which is made in the flesh by hands, in case you were wondering how that goes down. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, here's why this is important. Here's why this context is so incredible. In their day and age, they faced an incredible problem in the early church. And the problem was, is that for basically ever, up until this point, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. Starting in the garden and then beyond that, going to Abraham and starting a nation. And this was going to be God's chosen people. And they were to be a blessing to the entire world. That the entire world would be blessed through them. And in this idealized form, Israel wouldn't have this, this strong sense of, of soul exclusivity. But that people would see the nation of Israel. They would say the, the differences and the distinctions and the way that they lived in such a way. That people would look at them and say, that God must be the God. Well, the problem with that is as Jesus came to planet Earth and he died, it was this un unveiling, basically, that God was now for everybody. That there was no group of people, there was no dynamic of people, there was no subset of people that God was now relevant to or that could have a relationship with God. The guy was for everybody. But the problem was is that this was different because the way that the Jews lived and the way that the Gentiles lived were so wildly different. Especially in the ceremony sense, the ceremonial sense. That is to say, there were things that the Jewish folks would do to make themselves clean or what felt like righteous that they could go and they could worship God. Well, if you imagine any of the, the dynamics that we face today in terms of differences, like, like put all of the difficult things into one big category. This was a difference of value sets and morality. This was a difference of what religious practices was like or were like and what made God happy. This was even in and of itself an ethnocentric dynamic that clashed together all at the same time between these same groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, you probably don't know this, but we live in a very divided culture right now. I don't know if, if you've heard of, like, you know, just, you know, politics, perhaps, that tends to divide us. I don't know if you've heard of, gosh, like, it was funny. I was thinking about this, and I was like, man, I don't know that there's many things that, like, don't create subcategories and classifications of people, right? Like, everything from where you live, what you look like, how you dress, your level of education. Then with people who are in the same level of education, where your education came from, how much you make, what you talk like, what you do. I mean, 
Those are just like the easy things. Those aren't even the difficult and the complex political, religious, ethnic tensions that exist in our culture and our world. And what's difficult about this, what we all know and what they experienced, was that walking into this, walking into this entity called church was this really, really interesting, eclectic, diverse dynamic of people. And so he begins by talking to the Gentiles and saying, Gentiles, you know, you guys were once far off. You guys were other than separated from the commonwealth of God. But he's about to say that's not the case anymore. He said, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, huge statement, but, but there is something that has fundamentally shifted and changed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now what's interesting is he's starting to get at this kind of point. That, that God, in reconciling us to him, has also reconciled us to one another. That God, as he reconciled us to him, has reconciled us to one another. But here's the problem. We're people, and we've got issues. You've got issues. I've got issues. We've all got issues. And so when we walk into this thing, this place, this group, this family called church, we all bring our thoughts and our preferences. In fact, if we're being honest, we don't really think of them as preferences. We think of them as reasons. You know, it's like I don't have preferences, but I got a lot of good reasons. But what's interesting about this is they're walking into this same group, in this same dynamic, in this same tension that exists Because there's a tendency to separate based on preference, based on distinctions and groupings. Now, here's what I actually feel about this. We know this exists on a macro level. We know that it exists in the context not just like of the world, but our city. We know it probably exists not just in our city, but in our church. But very few of us actually acknowledge that it exists within inside of us. What do you think about this? I could give a sermon, let's just say, I could give a sermon on pretty much anything, and it would, be, it would feel safe to feel convicted about. I could say, you know what, we're going, to do, we're going to do an entire series on idolatry, on the sins of idolatry that we oftentimes face. We could talk about money, stewardship, and greed. Like, oh man, I felt convicted, I just, where I spend and how I spend and the level of generosity, I mean, I just felt convicted. Uh, We could probably do a sermon on relationships, the idolization of relationships, sometimes the idolization of marriage in single culture, sometimes the idolization of marriage in a marriage, sometimes, I mean, just just tons of different versions of variations. We could say, man, I feel convicted about that. Like, we could go through all these different versions and variations and all feel convicted. But as soon as I say, okay, James also says, if you have one person that walks in and you treat them in one way because of, of how much money it looks like they have, another person a different way because of how much money it looks like they don't have. In other words, if you show bias or preferential treatment, um, then that's also sin. Let me just say this. For most of us, we feel like we can't admit that we struggle with this. Like, very, like think about this. If you were Satan, let's just say, you know, devil's real. Let's just say you were Satan. What's the best way to get people to not ever work on anything? 
to never acknowledge it. I heard a guy preach, preach about this not too long ago, and I was like, man, that's brilliant. Because, like, we would say, yeah, man, I struggle with being honest. Yeah, man, I struggle with idolatry. I struggle with my relationships. I struggle in my marriage. I struggle parenting. I struggle financially. I struggle with addiction. Do you struggle with racism? No, 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 not me. Not intentionally or unintentionally. Not, no, I don't, I, I don't ever show preference. That's not me. It's like, okay, I'm pretty sure I'm a broken sinner. I'm pretty sure that whether I do intentionally or unintentionally, that can, that can tend to happen to me. And it happened in the church that they had their groupings of people. And we like the people who are like us. We like the people who look like us, who talk like us, who walk like us, who do the types of things that we do, who are interested in the type of things that we're interested in. And let me just tell you, like, that is fairly normal. But what we have to do is get to the point where we say, okay, Perhaps I have preferences, too. And perhaps, based on those preferences, I have biases. And it's okay to acknowledge that. Why would we acknowledge every other sin but never acknowledge that sin? I'm not saying you do struggle with that. I'm just saying it's okay if you do. Because it's the first step to actually like doing something about it. So he looks into this culture, and he says this. He says, for he himself... He said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He said he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, the context of this, we don't get because a lot of times we don't piece different parts of the Bible together. But it's pretty fascinating. So, Paul is writing this in Rome, in a jail cell. Paul's writing this in Rome, in a jail cell. The way that they had their worship set up in the temples, in the Jewish temples, was that there was like a place that was like the holiest place, and there was a place where all the Jews went, and there was a place, there was kind of a dividing wall where the Gentiles couldn't get access into, couldn't go past, and there was like signs on the wall that basically said, if you're a Gentile, you go past this point, you die. Tough, right? So, there was a dividing wall between the two. So Paul, who has planted churches on his way to plant more churches, is on his way to Jerusalem. They keep telling him, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested and you're going to die. He says, basically at one point, just says, I know, I'm called, quit telling me that. Like, you are breaking my heart. They're like, Paul, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. He's like, he's like, dude, that's clear. And God has also called me to this place, and this is where I'm going. So he goes to the place. As he's in Jerusalem, he talks to some of the elders. As he talks to some of the elders, they say, you should go to the temple and go through this purification process so that people know that you still honor the law that was given through Moses, the moral law. The people should know, and even in a ceremonial sense, you're willing to do that. So he starts to go through that process. Well, the last day, people see him, recognize him. This whole uprising starts off, and they arrest him. Let me read to you one of the details that's recorded in Acts chapter 21 about this. Verse 29. He's explaining that the reason that they arrested him was that they had previously Trophimus, which I know everybody's familiar with, the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Here's the context of what's going on. Paul, in writing a letter to the Ephesians, is writing a letter to the Ephesians for being in jail for something that he did not do, but what they claimed he did was that he brought a Gentile beyond the dividing wall into the presence of God. 
In other words, it's like Paul saying this. I didn't do it, but Jesus did. I didn't take him beyond the dividing wall, but when I was reconciled to God, God took down a reconciliational wall that needed to be taken down between us. Think about this. There was both a vertical and a horizontal reconciliation that happens concurrently in salvation. That if I can be reconciled to God because of our differences, then there is not a difference between me and you greater than the difference between me and God. In fact, there's a primary identity that begins to take place even beyond that. He said, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that's almost completely a a sense of ceremonial implication, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. In other words, And so when I realize that God has satisfied the hostility between me and him, he's also satisfied the hostility between me and you. But there's something actually a little bit deeper that's happening just besides the fact of reconciliation, right? Because we can just get along and be reconciled to one another. He said there's there's this really, really, really helpful dynamic that happens in the context of the church. That under Jesus, we are not one in the other. We are the same. Now, We still have individuality and particularity that is a part of who God has created us, the context in which he's dropped us into us, in us, and a a wiring with which which he's given us. There are distinctions and similar, there are distinctions and uniquenesses and particularities, but none of those supersede the now primary and the ultimate, which is our identity in Christ. That we are all, why I love the the idea of fostering in the arc of the the entire uh, service today is because we first started talking about fostering. And fostering oftentimes leading to adoption. And like you don't adopt kids and think, okay, I'm going to adopt you into my family, but I'm going to treat you as other than in my family. If you do, my wife has a great therapy practice, your kid should go, okay? Right, but none of us would be like, yeah, like I'm bringing this kid in and I'm adopting this kid. They are a part of my family and I can't wait for my kids to treat them with contempt. Right? No, you bring them in and they are a part of the family. Now, in any family, there's tension, of course, of course. But, but what if, what if, what if, what if the beautiful part of the church was not the fact that we didn't have differences, is that we had a primary identity as family, and under the banner of family, we had differences, but those differences actually helped us to see Jesus better. Like, like what if that was kind of the point? Now, does that mean that we all have to exist in the exact same community, in the exact same four walls, in the exact same church? Of course not, because we don't have a building that's big enough to hold all of us. And I think that the diversity in the churches is beautiful because, man, there are some some churches that are so traditional in their worship, and it's incredible. And there are some churches that are (laughs) like us where it's like, hey, do you all have stained glass? It's like, bro, we don't have glass. Let alone, we don't even stain our floors, right? We have stained concrete. That's what we have. But what's interesting in this, I find, 
is that as he's communicating this and writing this, he's saying, man, like there is this sense of preference that we can have, but there's this ultimate identity that we have in Jesus. He says, by abolishing the law, verse 16, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came, he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In other words, and there is no longer a group. There is no longer longer one specific group that has unique access to God. That God is for anyone and God is for everyone. That all are welcome. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens. He's about to multiply three different ideas here. He says, so you are no longer strangers. You're citizens. Your citizenship has now changed. If you're a follower of Jesus, your citizenship has now changed. Uh, uh, far above our national identity is our spiritual identity, which is the identity of Jesus. He says, so I want you to know, as soon as you start seeing people from other places and other spaces, maybe other countries, and you start to think of them as different, if they are followers of Jesus, that identity supersedes every other identity that we have. That that's how I see myself as a Jesus follower. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He says, so it's farther than that. You're members of the same family now. You're members of the same group now. You're same members of the same the, the, the ecosystem of the family of faith that we have all been adopted into God's family. But you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple into a holy temple in the Lord. I love this because he basically pauses and says, okay, so let's, let's also make sure that in this sense there is clarity in what we're also saying. That's central, the cornerstone, the entire thing rides and dies on Jesus. That he is the foundational point, the foundational place, the foundational stone. And next to that, he says, in the way that we kind of learn how to know and how to work and how to live that out is the apostles' teaching, most specifically captured in his word. And so we all just basically say together as one big family that, hey, whatever this word says, that we're going to do it, right? Like, like whatever we read, whatever we see, and we're going to go through processes and conversations, we're going to say whatever it is that we see, this is what we're going to do. Now, what I think is, is, is beautiful about this is, again, we live in a culture, in a context that currently sees other and disassociates. But Jesus looks at it and said, no, these are all my family. These are all my children, people who have placed their faith, their hope, their trust in me. And he finishes by saying, and in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, the idea here is that it once was a temple that held God. He says, but you now, the church, are the temple. You are the place, you are the people. That you are being built up into a spiritual temple that is to be the place that glorifies God on the planet. Now here's, here, here's why I think all this stuff, to back up to verse 11 where he says, therefore, this is why I think this matters. Is because first and foremost is this idea of salvation. 
Salvation through God alone, through faith, by grace, through faith that we know. And then as the church, we then move forward together as one body. But the difficulty in the body is the difficulty that's in my heart, which is the difficulty that wants a sense of my thoughts, my ideas, my preferences. But at the core of it is this question. How have you participated? How have I participated in disunity in the body if by nothing else, simply by not being intentional about acknowledging that I have preferences? There is a really, really common phrase that um, Sunday, Sunday is the most um, segregated day of the week. I think that that is incredibly true and untrue at the same time. I think it's true. I think it states the effect, not the cause. Here's what I actually think. What we see on Sunday, for the most part, is simply representative of the last 10 people that we've had in our living room at our house. Right? We like to think, oh, man, like, like this is where it is out there. And I don't just mean this in terms of ethnicity. I mean, I mean uh, generationally. I mean this socioeconomically. I mean this occupationally educationally. Like, think about, think about the last group of people, the last several groups of people that you had and you hung out with and you spent time with and you invited into your home. Now, the point of this isn't to say, like, you're bad, you're awful. I'm just saying this. Like, we have preferences. And if we don't acknowledge them and realize that, man, there is no longer a dividing wall. And we don't just care about all these versions and variations of diversity just simply for the sake of versions and variations of diversity because it's a cultural cool thing to do right now. It's because the kingdom of God is for all people everywhere, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, gathering together, worshiping God with their entire lives. And when we don't live that out, it's a gospel issue. Well, how do you, how do you, what do you mean by that? One of my favorite passages, Galatians chapter 2, there's this story that's recounted where Paul is talking about Peter. So Paul, writing Galatians, talking about this conversation that he had with Peter. Peter went to Galatia. Peter started living with the people that were there, mostly a Gentile group, right? So he starts living, becoming like them so that he can reach them. Nothing that was sinful. It wasn't just typical ceremonial of the Jewish crew. So a Jewish crew comes into town after Peter's been there for a while, and they start looking at Peter like, Peter, what you're doing is a weirdo. Now let me just pause this. If you ever push yourself to engage with people who aren't like you, you will probably experience this. Of people who are like you looking at you and starting to treat you as other. So what did Peter do? He started to slink back. Started to obey the Jewish laws and the customs and all this type of stuff. Well, Paul shows up, and he says one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, and I talked to Peter, and I, I opposed him to his face, which I really like. I'm just like, he's like, I wasn't messing around. I'm just going, I'm talking like, like I'm in your grill about this, Peter, right? So he goes, he talks to Peter's face, and what does he say? He does not say, Peter, you are acting in such a way that you are being a hypocritical racist. That you are being a preferential, hypocritical racist. No, what, what does he say? He says, when I saw that he wasn't living in alignment with the gospel. In other words, he saw this. He says, Here, here's the problem. Is this isn't a true outer working of who God has created us to be. 
And the reality is, when we look at this book, it was a commandment to go to all nations, to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that all people would come to know him. And so the reason that we care about a diverse group of people is because the world is a diverse and we care about the world. We're all image bearers of God, and yes, we have particularities. So what does this actually like functionally mean then? Number one, and I can't say this enough, it starts with the acknowledgement. Yes, I tend to prefer people like me, and I need to actively push against that. Like legitimately just that would change most of us. And I don't mean that, and I say that as like a co-participant in the fact that, that that's true. I think that's kind of the starting point. <laughs> but I actually think that the next step in that is just to know Jesus better, to understand the gospel better. Right, because Peter, Paul didn't look at Peter and say, Peter, so you need to start setting up coffee once a week with these Gentiles so that way you can actually be friends with Gentiles so you can know Gentiles so you can understand Gentiles better. So Peter, you need to start meeting with older people because you're a younger person. Peter, you need to start with younger people because you're an older person. You need to meet with people who are economically, socioeconomically, ethnically different. You know, he says, he says Peter, you just need to understand the gospel better because in understanding the gospel better, you will understand how God influences and how God invites all people to himself regardless regardless of preference, and perhaps in preference we will see Jesus better through the whole process. Here's the truth. A couple minutes ago we sang a song in Spanish. Some of you didn't like it. Let me just tell you, it's okay to acknowledge that. Let me tell you the problem with that. You're going to hate heaven. It's going to be real problematic. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping God together. Well, I just, you know, I just didn't engage as much in the, in the worship when we sang like this. I just felt myself distancing, you know. I just, I just and, you know, and, and, and I'm like, when I go to, like, like, what I want on Sunday is to go and just, like, hear for, like, God speak to me. Like, oh, man, that's, we forgot about community and you. Man, gosh, we should have just worshiped it around that. Now, that's just a microcosm. to the realization that the problems that I see out there exist in here. And so hear me clearly. I say this as someone who just as much as everyone else struggles with this. And I find myself, the more I know Jesus better, the more I understand the gospel better, he gives me the ability to see the world as he sees. Because if God can reconcile me to him, he can reconcile me to anybody else. And we're centered around Jesus. We're centered around his word and his truth. Yet at the same time, realizing we are of the family of God. So let me end with this. Uh, I was really tempted to offer some application. And I think there are some cool things you could say. I think that you can invite some people to lunch. I think you can think of some intentional ways to just say people that you know and people that you see and people that you already exist in places and spaces with. You just say, hey, let's go to lunch together. Let's go to coffee together. You seem interesting, neat, cool. But I think the biggest thing is just knowing Jesus better. So we just decided the best way to end this service together is to take communion, to realize that all of this stems from and flows through the person of Jesus, that the night that he died, he gathered his closest disciples together, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. 
Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we take communion together as a church family, my goal has been that the love of God, the truth of God, the, the, the universality of the way that we all have access to God, and then give our lives to God, and defer to God, and love all people as God did, in ways that were both grace and truth. My prayer is not that we automatically become this incredibly wildly diverse place, but that the gospel so impacts our hearts that we love and are passionate about all people from every place and space that there is. And that what flips it for us is not the sense of, man, we really ought to. But God so loved, I feel honored too. And my primary identity is Jesus. We're going to take communion together as a church. And I'm praying that God invades our heart in such a way that it pours out to a love to anybody and everybody else. And so, Jesus, we ask and we pray that as we're here together as a church family, Jesus, you are ultimate. You are the authority. You are our identity. All these particularities and uniquenesses and individualities, yes, you have gifted, given, and wired us. But, Jesus, nothing short of you should divide us. God, if ever we are convicted or if ever we find ourselves dividing over anything except for you, Jesus, and your truth, God, would you convict us of our idolatry? Jesus, I pray and I ask that you would give us as a church family the awareness of how your gospel, your love for us displayed on the cross, changes our hearts and changes our lives. And so, God, I pray as we take communion together, we would experience your body which was broken and your blood which was shed in the realization of the fact that you reconciled us to you and took down any wall between one another. God, I pray and I ask that you would let that love invade our hearts in such a way that we would love one another in spite of and in light of our many differences. In Jesus' name we pray.